Welcome to Mental Health in Focus, a platform for talking all things mental health. Expand your knowledge by joining our expert hosts as they go beyond the 101. Welcome to this first episode of Eating Disorders Beyond the Unknown. This series, produced by a partnership between the National Eating Disorders Collaboration and the Mental Health Professionals Network, aims to challenge perspectives about eating disorders and provide tips and strategies for you, the listener, to better understand and respond to them. My name is Beth Shelton. I'm a psychologist who works clinically with people experiencing eating disorders, and I'm also the National Director of the National Eating Disorder Collaboration. I'll be co-hosting this series with Belinda Caldwell, my friend and colleague, who's walked the walk in a caring role for her daughter and is currently the CEO of Eating Disorders Victoria. Welcome, Belinda. Thanks, Beth. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to all of our conversations over the next four episodes of this series, especially because we'll be looking at eating disorders through both the provider and the lived experience lens. We will be. It's a bit of an experiment in a way because across the four episodes, we'll be talking with each other and with our invited guests to help us. And we'll be combining three sources of knowledge. That's our aim. Research. What do we know from research? What do we know from lived experience? What do you, Belinda, and our invited guests who know in you know, eating disorders from the inside, what do they know? And what do I know too from clinical experience, from many years of listening and hearing and talking to people and helping people towards recovery? Our aim, I guess, for you, the listener, is to unpack the lived experience and clinical realities of eating disorders and also build your sense of your role in the system of care for people experiencing eating disorders. Today, in this first episode, we'll be considering some of the myths and stigmas which characterise this field. And we'll be thinking about what's changed in the past 10 years in how we think about eating disorders. In episodes two and three, we'll be drilling into detail by exploring the diagnoses of anorexia, atypical anorexia and restrictive eating, and bulimia and binge eating. And in the final episode, we'll explore the whole spectrum from healthy eating through to an eating disorder. Before we launch into it, Belinda... Could you tell us a bit about yourself and how you've come to this role as CEO of EDV? Sure. Um, I came to this role really through two paths. I think um, I had 35 years of working in the health system, um, in public health, primary health care, and sort of health change management type roles. And while I was still working in that area, my daughter developed anorexia in 2011. She was hospitalised and we undertook family-based treatment. She was an under-18 young person. Um, And our journey, you know, it was extremely challenging at times, traumatic, um, and brought our family closer together. But the key thing for me is, you know, it really created a lot of questions for me about how we can do this better. And so I was able to then combine my professional skills and experience with an area that I now feel you know, super passionate um, about. I really want to make a change um, for the journey of people with an eating disorder and their families. Um, EDV is our the statewide peak body supporting people, um, supporting Victorians, I should say, um, impacted by eating disorders. Uh, and it's a real privilege to be able to walk with our community as a trusted guide. 
Well, I'm just going to say straight up, Belinda, what a vibrant organisation it's becoming and is under your leadership. So it's wonderful. And maybe it's kind of nice for our listeners to know too that we met Mm. when you were coming towards the end of your journey with your daughter and I was sort of really coming into Well, I was in eating disorders but really coming to have more of a passion, I guess, for changing the system and for really getting things to work better for people with lived experience. And we had a lot of opportunity to talk and share ideas at that time of life. And now we're both leading organisations in the sector. So it's kind of, it's it's been a great... It's been a really interesting <laughs> journey, really hasn't has. it? And, yeah. and it was such a strong, um, you know, it was, it was such an opportunity. We both, for listeners, we both worked at an organisation called the Victorian Centre of Excellence in Eating Disorders, which really was about supporting change in our system and doing um, professional development. I was there with a carer lived experience lens uh, and a little bit of project management and uh, Beth is a senior clinician and we had such wonderful, robust, thought-provoking discussions um, while we were there um, that, you know, I think have really added to both of our thinkings and conceptualisations of the problems and where the changes can be made. And, and also so good to learn how to how to sort of mingle yep. your lived experience and clinical knowledge, I think. And, and also, I just have to say, too, we did disagree. Oh, oh times. many times. Yeah. Many, many times we disagreed. But um, out of those disagreements, yeah. we often came up with really cool... Beth is very visual, so Beth likes to scribble things and draw diagrams, and um, we would end up coming up with these really cool diagrams explaining where we'd landed. Um, so Beth, how did you... No, can you just tell our listeners how you came to this role? I started actually my first career was as a dancer, contemporary dancer and choreographer and artistic director. And as a choreographer, you're always looking at bodies and thinking about the relationship of the person to their body, their personness and their body. And I just became really interested in that and what that was all about. So when in mid-career, I followed another real interest, which was psychology and started the arduous process of training as a as a psychologist, I just was very drawn to following that through. And that led me then to the construct of body image because that's how in psychology we most think about um, bodies and people's relationships with them. So my doctoral research was in that area and that naturally led into a career in eating disorders. So I started to then work uh, clinically with people um, I've worked mainly with adults, but I've also worked um, strongly with um, families and people, young people as well. So heard um, lots of stories and understood things from that side of things. I've also, you know, done a lot of training and kind of service development and thinking and then um, been in the, you know, as you say, Belinda, the privileged position of being able to lead um, some people who have the same kinds of passions for change and um, to move things forward at the NEDC. So that's been my path. All right, let's kick it off. So what we've done (laughs) is we have a hat of myths because there are a lot of myths and a fair bit of stigma too that surrounds the field and it's quite an emotive kind of area too, talking about food and eating and eating disorders. So we've decided to use um, a a bowl full of myths and we're going to pull out a myth and talk about each one as they come. So we're not quite sure what's going to come out first. (laughs) So do you want to to lead us into that? Put your hand in the bowl. I'll put my hand in the bowl. What do we got here? We have got, ah, well, here's a really common one. Um, eating disorders have a choice. Okay. So that's a very common myth and it's a very damaging myth. It's one of the ones that I rail against regularly. <laughs> um, yeah. what, what's, so dam- what's, what's the damage? 
Well, firstly, it just doesn't reflect. So if, you, if you've cared for someone with an eating disorder, there is nothing about what that journey looked like that for a second looked like it was a choice. In our case with Lucy, it looked like someone had hijacked her. You know, there was, uh, there was the person that's sort of see, Lucy was with her eating disorder wasn't the Lucy that we knew before her eating disorder and um, got to know again after her eating disorder. Um, she was very hijacked by it. There was nothing. And she has often said to me since um, that point, no, particularly I have most done well, there was just nothing um, that she could have done. She couldn't have chosen recovery at her sickest. There was just nothing about that. So I guess um, the choice to me diminishes the depth of the experience or the complexity of the experience or, um, you know, uh, the high level of distress and lack of choice that someone with an eating disorder is experiencing. So it's, it's one I really hate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. I suppose from a, from a clinical experience point of view, it really, dimins- it really diminishes the mental illness component of it, that there's a point at which it just goes into something which is way beyond anything that can be a choice and that no one would choose it. That's the other thing. Because once you get in and it's, it's whatever kind of men- um, you know, eating disorder you have, the experience is so difficult um, and so painful and it takes you away from other people and it has impacts on your life that are really deep um, and also the, the sort of, I'm going to use, a re- we're using strong language, hate, I'm going to say torture of the absolute preoccupation with yeah. weight, shape and eating that takes over a person's brain is a kind of torture, uh, you know. So Absolutely. that's where the, you know, the mental illness is so strong. But you know what, I reckon there's a reason why that myth is so strong. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that is that it's confusing because it can seem as if an eating disorder starts with a choice because someone might start dieting, yeah. right, or they might start a behaviour, an extreme weight, you know, weight control behaviour, whatever, so, and then they get an eating disorder. So it looks like they chose the eating disorder, but they didn't. Yes. They just chose to diet or they chose to do if that's what the trigger was for them. Because I think it's confusing at the end too because you sort of do have to make a choice to get better, mm. but that doesn't mean that you could have always made that choice or you can make it on your own. It's really really hard work and I think we're going to hear this from our lived experience guests too aren't we yes. that there's yeah. a lot involved and you and often you have to make a conscious choice so that becomes confusing then from the outside because it's like oh the person's choosing to do it but they're not yeah and I, yeah. I think I, I do agree well I, I slightly disagree about the choice to recover I think you know certainly the model of treatment that we used didn't give Lucy a lot of choice about those early stages of the recovery um but she has absolutely had to choose to stay in recovery. Um, and I think um, uh, there's a strong choice that happens there. But I still think even, you know, if it's an adult, there's a lot more choice that has to happen in that recovery process. But we just have to acknowledge how hard that choice is. It's not, a, it's not an easy choice, you know. It's not, a, um, you know. it's not a choice to go and take a holiday, you know. It's a, <clears throat> it's a choice to do something that creates incredible fear and anxiety um, and um, it's a choice many of us wouldn't make. I remember um, what was really helpful for me when Lucy, when I couldn't quite understand why she couldn't choose to eat, um, that someone said, oh, you know, there's a sort of a bungee jumping analogy on one of the parent peer support forums and 
and for me, it suddenly it tapped into something because I'm terrified of heights. Now, I have never jumped out of an aeroplane. I have never abseiled, and I will never do either of those because I have a choice to refuse to do that. But I was trying to think, what would I do if someone was trying to say I had to do that? That's the only way forward for me. What would it take to do that? And I can't even, you know, that is such a a visceral fear of mine that I can't even imagine how I would jump out of a plane. Like, there's just... And I had I had the ability to choose not to do it, but people with an eating disorder, you know, ultimately, if they need to get better, they don't have that choice. So, I think the choice thing is really. Um, I think what you said before, I'd like to just pick up on that a bit because I think you're right. People do make choices that may be the beginning of an eating disorder, but many of us make the same choices and they don't evolve into an eating disorder. You know. Everybody, you know, I don't know what the stats are. You probably know the stats, how, what percentage of people have been on a diet. Well, around a half of um, adolescent girls have for exactly. a start, and that was in 2017, so it's probably lots more since then. Yeah, but women throughout their life, you know, women and men uh, these days. Um, so lots of us go on diets, but, um, you know, only a small proportion, or not small, but a proportion of people uh, that will turn into. I gave weight. I've only been on one diet in my life. Weight Watchers when my kids were preschoolers, and I gave it a really good crack, and you know, lost a significant amount of weight, put it all on and more, um, and but you no, know, didn't turn into an eating disorder. You know, I didn't end up with you know completely preoccupied, preoccupying thoughts. I didn't think I was the worst person in the world because I failed at my diet. Um, so I think. Um, yeah, so we need to acknowledge people do make some choices that can be precipitative for uh, people with a predisposition, um, but they weren't to know that beforehand. Okay, so choice is really a dodgy way to look at an eating disorder. It's like saying I made a choice to have diabetes or I had a choice to have breast cancer or I made a choice to have a psychotic illness, you know. That isn't what happened, you know. Um, you, you have an illness. But can I yeah. say something that I still think is a bit... Um, might be a little bit controversial. I yeah. still think, even though I think a lot of us explicitly would say, yeah, no, eating disorders um, are not a choice, you know, we can intellect. I still think there are elements at times in treatment <laughs> um, that places so much agency on the individual for their journey into the eating disorder and back out of it um, that there's almost a little sort of hidden assumptions about choice that, you know, even sometimes clinicians and services and hospitals and things can make about the individual with an eating disorder. So I'll just throw that slight um, controversy in there. Would you agree or disagree? <laughs> sometimes I think that, um, you know, sometimes in some of the documents that people get that say, you know, you just have to make a choice to do this and that and here's your process of thinking it through in a CBT kind of way or something like that does make but it sound as if it's... they say people are treatment resistant oh, or sure. non-compliant... Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Look, for me, I guess um, I, I just don't think like that anymore. No. You know, so I won't take responsibility for that for the whole clinical establishment, but I, I do understand. And maybe that's one of the ways in which we're changing, hopefully, Belinda, is yeah. that we used to think, you know, those terms, the person's being tre treatment resistant, you know, the person is non-compliant. That's a beauty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> those terms are not really used anymore as we've come to understand how profound the neurobiological predicament is for the person as well as the suffering they're experiencing. We, I think we're understanding much more that get, you know, getting out of an eating disorder 
um, what it takes, like bungee jumping every, it's not yes. just once, it's bungee six jumping every lunchtime, yeah. <laughs> six times a day, exactly. Um, what that really means for many people, I think, I think, and also understanding that the course of getting better is often a relapsing course, you know. Yeah. It's not for everybody. No. Some people can, especially with early bulimia or binge eating, sometimes you can just get a ski ramp out. It's and so great. And even early anorexia, when we catch it in, in adolescence, you know, we get it early enough and we pivot that. Um, those eating behaviours around quickly. But I guess I've I've just really learned that <laughs> you, you don't do that. You don't blame people for their eating disorder. No. And also, unfortunately, often people with eating disorders are blaming themselves, especially at the beginning. And so anything that kind of... Um, it just makes people feel worse and worse and worse about themselves. And people with eating disorders, and I don't know what this personality trait is, but certainly my daughter experienced it. You know, that she's the queen of the shoulds. I should do this. I should be good at this. I should get this mark. I should. And she, she's always got these shoulds. And... If someone said, you know, you should be able to get yourself out of this eating disorder, that would be another should that is on her list that she can't do, you know, or she couldn't do. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll probably get on to that neurobiological underpinning and the traits, won't we, around perfectionism and tendency towards compulsive thinking and those obsessive traits and things like that that might be um, kind of underlying that too. Shall I pull but, another? Oh, yes, I think so. Out of the bowl? I think we're ready for another myth. All right. Oh, this is scary. <laughs> what shall I pull this um. time? Ah, I've pulled the one that always gets me going on a bit of a soapbox. Um, families are to blame. <laughs> and, um, All right, why don't I start and you start can prepare with this your one. Exactly. <laughs> Do that. You know, um, I reckon from a mental health historical perspective, and again, we're looking at what's changing or changed yeah. here, there was that just out of a sort of desire to understand eating disorders early on, and they were quite fetishised. You often had like, mm. you know, old males kind of looking at teenage girls mm. and discerning, you know, something about, I don't know, a weird way of looking at why they aren't eating yeah. just as a perception. But that fits in with also the development of, of psychodynamic kind of theories yes. of, of mental health as well. And I think, you know, back then, as people started to understand how important early attachment is and the, the development of schemas around relationships and those sorts of things, which continue to be really important yep. today, that kind of landed with a kind of mother blaming, mm. you know, and that got taken up and that got applied strongly to eating disorders because also they were seen as sort of highly female kind of areas as well. And so this idea that sort of mothers and family functioning had driven the person into the eating disorder it sort of became a myth that people kind of felt. And maybe because we didn't understand it. We didn't understand other aspects of why eating disorders um, happen for people and it seems kind of a bit against nature, that the symptoms. So, yeah, I think something happened there that, that put us wrong. But mental health has moved on from that and we've seen the damage that's been done by those kinds of understandings. And I think now that idea that the family is a resource, the family is the place, and especially for eating, because that's where people eat. Yes. And so, you know, understanding that all families have dynamics, um, all families have their different patterns. And I remember... Um, Daniel Lagrange, Daniel Lagrange, who was one of the originators of family-based treatment for eating disorders, saying if you, the research showed that if you had a hundred families in a gym, they would all have different kinds of functioning or whatever, and you wouldn't be able to pick out. This is based on research any particular kinds of functioning or patternings within that family that would be associated with the incidence of an eating disorder, and we just have to go from that. Absolutely, yeah. and you know, and I think that's. Um 
you know, been borne out, you know, time and time again by anybody that practices a family approach to eating disorders that it's quite difficult to predict, you know, which families um, are going to be able no, no every family comes to this process with different resources and um and so we need to explore that and you know rather than discounting families as being you know particularly toxic outside you know i get the caveat on all of this which is always assumed that you know um uh, domestic violence um, issues in the families and certain things like that may come into play and um but i think you know, eating disorder. Part of the challenge, I think, particularly with um, involving families with adult, of people with adult, um, adults with eating disorders. I'm trying to say, um, is that, you know, if the eating disorder's been going on for a while, eating disorders are amazing at creating conflict in families. You know, it creates this fairly emotive. Um, environment at home. You know, people are panicking. If you're watching your family members not eat or purge or these sorts of things and if you don't have the correct um, uh, understanding and knowledge at your fingertips about what's going on you know it it can look you know like they're deliberately ruining Christmas dinner every year they're you know they're making life really difficult for everybody Um, and so and you know so people can respond to that in all sorts of ways that aren't helpful Um, and so you often you can come with a bit of a um, by the time you get to treatment, um, we all look slightly um, mad ourselves, you know. I, I remember um, one time when we were doing um, some training when I was at SEED and we were doing training to a whole room of health professionals and my role was to tell the story of our journey, you know, with Lucy, which I did. And I just headed back to the office and the rest of the team came up afterwards and they said that someone in the room had said afterwards, well, if all my families were as sensible and as sane as Belinda, you know, this whole process would be easier. And I thought, oh, I so failed in my job because I didn't describe enough how chaotic my family was at that point, how I sobbed my way through almost every FBT session. I would have looked like, you know, I couldn't hold a line on anything, you know. Um, Rob was... And they're constantly angry at everybody because he was feeling judged and you know so you know we are normally quite an average uh, family and um, so I think one of the things that touches me around this issue particularly is um, the sensitivity for families because I doubt there are very few families out there at the beginning of this journey that are not already going through what did I do wrong what what you know, what could I have done that might have stopped this? Where did I miss this? What did I do wrong? Lucy's diagnosis occurred in an emergency department and we had to go from the emergency department up to the adolescent ward where she was being admitted. And I just remember that vividly, that trip in that lift with her. So between the word diagnosis and when I got onto the ward and had a conversation with the admitting psychiatrist, I just my brain just went has she been sexually abused somewhere and I, I've missed it? Or, you know, my, my brain was going to all sorts of things that I've done wrong, that my kid is so malnourished and needs to be admitted to the hospital for a cardiac um, cardiac monitoring. So I think, um, you know, the, the family's to blame. Belinda, if I can say this, it's a little bit personal, but is it like the feeling that I get from you? Is it also that... The, 
that sort of blame is mm. very close, mm. both in an adult context for themselves and in yeah. the family um, for themselves. And um, so I guess it makes me feel as a clinician and as a person who helps to build the system of care that it's so absolutely crucial that we don't in, in unconscious ways or whatever sort of promulgate that sense that we really do take that idea that the family is has its functioning and it is a resource for recovery and that we can still work with it but but it's really important to be straight with people about the, the genetic and neurobiological causes of eating disorders what triggers them what makes them just like other illnesses you know so that the parents can think well, so, well they wouldn't think it's my fault if my child had you know diabetes um, you know, and this, the consequences of that blame and shame not being dealt with effectively is it paralyzes people. I, you know, and you know, certainly for families, I've seen so many families really stuck. You know, they are feeling a sense of grief that this has happened to their child. They feel terrible. They've lost confidence in their parenting because how did they let this happen in the first place? And if anybody then you know comes in over the top of that with any suggestion of blame. Um, even unintended, you know, I think there's just that super sensitivity um, to it um, because we really need to, you know, good psychoeducation, making sure people understand this is just something that's happened in the same way that another illness has happened and that your job is to really, you know, get moving in the same way that you would with any other uh, condition. Um, but, yes, we need to avoid that effect that it paralyses people. Absolutely. So, look, today we're talking about myths and we're, we're busting myths, we're examining them and looking at how the thinking in the eating disorder field is moving forward. Maybe I'll just clang in here with a few stats from the research perspective. So, you know, how common are eating disorders? Approximately a million Australians are living with an eating disorder in any given year, so that's about 4% of the population. But there are many, many people, more people experiencing disordered eating and body image problems that affect their life too. That is increasing in the cohort of young people in Australia. Eating disorders can affect people at any age, but they're more prevalent still among adolescents and young people. Um, but we do see eating disorders and the onset of eating disorders at any age right up until 70, people in the 70s and 80s. Adolescence, however, is the highest risk time and between 12 and 25 years, in particular with an, an earlier kind of onset around the anorexia-like illnesses and sort of the bulimia and binge eating illnesses tend to be around late teens, early 20s kind of thing. So these are uh, flags for us, I guess. Females are about 80% of individuals with um, anorexia nervosa and about 70% of individuals with bulimia nervosa. But you have to remember that still leaves the other fifth and the other yeah, third exactly, exactly. in both those illnesses that are males. Um, and also, interestingly, with binge eating disorder, it's around 50% yeah. ma uh, males and females. And, and binge eating disorder is actually the highest incidence of yes. eating disorder. So 50% around of those people with eating disorders have binge eating disorder. Around, um, I think it's 12% have bulimia nervosa around... 4%, 3 to 4% have anorexia nervosa, and then there's a category of kind of um, non-specific illness. And isn't that such a, you know, such a pervasive myth that we're often dealing with is that guys can't get eating disorders, you know? And, you know, that's a terrible... That puts people in a terrible predicament. You know, men... men um, I can't remember the exact stat, but it's something like they're eight times less likely to be in treatment um, and to seek treatment. 
um, than uh, girls with an eating disorder. So um, we, you know, they're suffering in silence and, you know, the shame and the stigma for that group. So um, we just really need to be so much more alert and um, often adapting the way we do, you know, eating disorders have been a highly feminised Yeah, um, butterflies sector. everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very feminised, you know, and, it, you know, in our treatment, in the way we talk about it, in the supposition that we feel, you know, the people who are speculating in magazines. Um, and, you know, so I think... Um, it's 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 a it's one where we really have to swim against the tide quite actively. Yeah, and so I always really admire those, particularly young men who'll get out there and talk about their experiences. It's um really moving and amazing they do it. And just to put that in a bigger context, um, for both genders, um, only around twenty three percent of people we think are actually accessing the treatment they need for their eating disorders. So we've got a big lag. You know, we've got a big problem with actually... Um, and the other thing is that eating disorders don't typically remit without appropriate treatment. So we have people who suffer for a long time because they aren't able to see where to go, you know, as well. They're not sure what to and do. And I think actually, I, I'm not sure if this is shown in the research, but I, I think particularly with some of the um, uh, the more bulimia and binge eating end, that um, they struggle to identify it in themselves you know I think the rest of us you know if we break a leg or you know things we, we often um uh, we'll have half a, a stab at thinking that's what's wrong with us even before we get to the healthcare system um but I think you know people can often feel that they're the only person that behaves like this or you know this isn't an illness and you know, just that awareness that this is something that can be treated is difficult and also that um you know, what's normal eating and what's what's an eating disorder. Um, so it'll be really good when we get to episode four, Belinda, because we'll be able to unpack this quite strongly about what's what's normal eating, you know, what's a binge in normal kind of, kind of inverted commas terms compared to what binge eating is, for example, and um, what's disordered eating compared to, you know, just what people might put inverted commas normal dieting or those kinds of things. So I think it'll be great when we get to the end and we're able to pull that, that all yep. in. In the meantime, shall we grab another myth? <laughs> Yes, okay. Um, oh, well, we kind of... The myth I was just about to pull out, eating disorders only affect young girls, we've just tackled that <laughs> uh, that myth. Um, I think the one that... Um, I'm just wondering... I think it's a really important one. Well, an important one for me as a parent really was around um, getting that understanding of the role that both the genes and the environment play um, in the eating disorder. Um, and I guess maybe that kind of circles back around to the eating disorders of choices kind of myth. Um, but, you know, it's such an important thing. And it, it comes... I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people, lay people through to people who may have a clinical background or something, that people don't know that that's the case you know uh, it comes as a surprise and I used to have a little thing when people used to come up to me to say oh why isn't Lucy playing basketball or you know what's happening for Lucy and they'd just be asking we weren't particularly private I just oh I don't know if you heard but she's you know she got anorexia nervosa I don't know how much you know about anorexia nervosa but in recent years uh, research has really shown that it's a um, it has a genetic underpinning and um, there's a whole range of things that are going on in the brain that make it really difficult for her to eat it was a great explanation for me to 
kind of, I guess, head off at the past some of those dumb comments that people can make um, when they talk to you about your kid's eating disorder. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a useful framing for me and actually for Lucy over time. You know, it really helped her to get away from the fact that, um, you know, this was something that she chose or brought upon herself or something like that, that, um, you know, as soon as we understood better the both the genetic, the neurobiological um, sort of precipitants, um, uh, you know, it just made things so much easier in terms of actually how to support Lucy as well um, and how to protect her recovery once she was recovered. But how, do you find those, these things useful? Do you think people come to you? Are they surprised when they come to you that there is this element to it? I think they're re surprised and relieved um, and it makes sense to people really straight away. So people understanding that um, a big series of studies show that eating disorders tend to run in families for a start isn't something that people know. So, of course, when we have strong um, twin studies and other studies like that and we get a strong um, understanding around that there's this running in families that shows us that there's a strong genetic component to the, to the predisposition to an eating disorder. And that's not just in anorexia nervosa, that's in bulimia nervosa and in binge eating as well. And I really think we haven't quite got there as a community in understanding that yet. And then the second part, um, uh, huge worldwide um, genetic studies, as people know, are happening across the world across lots of different mental health conditions at the moment, and that includes eating disorders. And it's quite it's clear that there are particular genetic markers that are associated with the predisposition, in this case, to anorexia nervosa. And um, so that's helpful in us, in us starting to look at that. Interestingly, they're both um, uh, mental health markers and they're also metabolic markers. So that tell us to, tells us that there's things we don't know yet around what happens between the gut, the brain and neurobiology that are really affecting what goes on for people when um, an eating disorder happens. Um, and, of course, the, um, also the genetics express themselves in traits and that's where we get that neurobiological part that we talked about before, don't we, with, with, with that certain traits are really associated in particular with anorexia nervosa like perfectionism and obsessionality and a high achievement should orientation like you were talking about before with Lucy and also very predominantly anxiety. And harm avoidance was something that made a lot of sense to me, you know, and, and I guess that taps into the anxiety but, you know, Lucy was always and probably remains to a degree very attuned to avoiding harm, you know, avoiding risk, avoiding danger. Um, and that, um, you know, that was a really strong element. And, and once we kind of could understand why for her and not her sister, you know, had suddenly this all escalated and the, the food became the harm, um, that that just kind of, um, you know, it was just really helpful reframing you know, for us. Um, it also, what I think what is really nice about this stuff is it enables families to pivot from being angry or frustrated with their young person to taking a more compassionate stance. And, um, you know, I think, you know, in the same way that we, you know, can't get frustrated with someone who's got dementia, um, you know, we can't get frustrated with, you know, someone who's got an eating disorder in this instance, you know. Um, we... So it enables us to sort of take a more compassionate stance, which I think is hugely valuable for the person. Yes, and now now we're coming to the nub of where Belinda and I had to sort of really, um, <laughs> I guess, um, talk.
talk out our differences because there's also a way of understanding eating disorders that's sociocultural, that's to do with the toxicity of our culture when it comes to people being able to accept and live in a body that's their body, you know, eating okay, exercising okay, this is my body, is not the way our culture works and all of the um, triggers and things particularly for young people um, around all of that are also kind of seen to be a very strong precipitant and Belinda and I used to go back oh, and forth on this. She didn't like body image. Uh, I, I, well, I used to be really prickly about it because it really fed into my sense of blame or it fed into it felt like the prevailing story was around body image as precipitating someone into an eating disorder and then I couldn't. I couldn't match, I couldn't fit that with our story. So, and then it also made me feel a bit um, uh, judged that maybe I had made comments on Lucy's body shape or size, which I hadn't. But, you know, it wasn't, it just wasn't part of the dialogue at home. I have no sense of my body being anything. No, I don't particularly love it, don't hate it. It's just, it's just a, it's a non of, a non-event in a sense for me. Um, yeah, but but what about Belinda? When the eating disorder continued, what happened with Lucy's relationship with her body image and weight? It became terrible. So, you know, and, and we did have to grapple with it. So I always, I, I understood that it became a key symptom of the eating disorder. I guess what I was challenged with that often um, the path into the eating disorder was was put as a sort of a one a one-way path, of, oh, no, one, you know, and it had to be yes. Yeah, one route in the evaluation of weight and shape is the only exactly, trigger. and that and that is something that that that's just wrong, isn't it? We, we we just know that now. There are lots of ways that you can come into an eating disorder, and body image problems are a common one because that will what will precipitate extreme eating behaviours, and then the eating behaviours will be what will change the brain and precipitate the eating disorder. And that's what I often would argue was the missing bit in the middle. Diagrams would go from poor body image into eating disorder, whereas it was the behaviour that resulted from poor body image, um, the people's efforts to alter their shape and weight that um, was sending them into um, uh, yeah, into the eating disorder. Um, I feel like we're getting to the end of our time, Beth. Um, was there sort of a one key myth that we wanted to go home on? I don't know. The thing in my mind at the moment is that I, 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 I I'm the person now. I've become the person now. I write, for example, last week I wrote to a novelist whose books I really like. They're sort of a, you know, high end sort of, um, um, mystery novels and I wrote to her and I said I really like your books but I don't know if I can keep reading them because you are the body police you know because she puts in all this stuff about negative stuff about bodies and she fantastically she wrote back to me and we had a bit of a conversation around it but so I do see the sociocultural as well as the genetic and biological and behavioral parts as really important because I think we need a social movement we need a political resistance to the sort of environment that puts our young people and our um, older people into the situation where they will do the behaviours which lead to eating disorders. So I feel there is a world, there, there is a world of kind of I can stand shoulder to, to shoulder with you on that one now, Beth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I stand absolutely shoulder to shoulder with you on the neurobiological and the behavioural kind of way of looking at it too, 100%. So I think that probably All right. set the tone nicely for the next three episodes, which we are going to deal in much more detail around particular illnesses and what they look like and hopefully give you some really cool information to um to be able to help people 
uh, with those illnesses. Yeah, so look, we really hope that you stay with us across the four episodes. Today is about that sort of big bowl of, of what are we thinking about, what are the ideas. Next week, we're really going to dive into anorexia, atypical anorexia, after the kind of restrictive illnesses. The week after that, we'll be looking at bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and all of the issues around that. And on the last one, as I said, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about normal eating and the spectrum of normal eating. So stay with us if you can, because there's a lot to come. Thank you for listening to this episode of Eating Disorders Beyond the Unknown. And if you want to learn more about us, your co-hosts, or the organisations that we represent, NEDC, MHPN and EDV, or you want more information or access to related resources, follow the links on this episode's landing page. And both of our organisations, National Eating Disorder Collaboration in my case and Eating Disorders Victoria in Belinda's case, have lots of really good fact sheets and basic information and all sorts of things that you can follow up the things that we're talking about in really concrete ways through information you'll find on both of those websites. I was going to let people know on the webpage you can also find a link to the feedback, feedback survey. We value your feedback to ensure that we are helping you in your efforts to better respond and recognise eating disorders. So please follow the link and let us know whether you found this episode helpful and or give us suggestions about how we can better meet your needs beautiful we look forward to that so please join us for the next episode where we'll be really focusing on restrictive eating and illnesses associated with that anorexia atypical anorexia and after a new diagnosis um, avoidant restrictive intake disorder so thanks for joining us and that's goodbye from me thanks beth great chatting with you um till next time goodbye from me thanks belinda see you Thanks for listening to this episode of Mental Health in Focus. Stay tuned for more episodes by hitting that subscribe button. And while you're there, don't forget to leave us a rating.